co-founder of Rebel Global Security, and he's been kind enough uh, earlier to sit down with us uh, for a podcast a bit ago. And so we thought it'd be important to bring you back for a few reasons. Um, part of what your company does is deal with the challenges that corporations have in the critical infrastructure space, whether they be in the energy space, financial institutions, and other uh, clients or potential clients dealing with physical security issues, cyber security issues. We had talked offline that you say sometimes, uh, unfortunately, they come to you after there's been a problem, but obviously you guys provide advice to hopefully either prevent or mitigate a problem before it happens. Given the world that we're in today, specifically in terms of what's going on in the Middle East, Russia and Ukraine, the, the potential for uh, terrorist attacks uh, at global institutions or domestic institutions is pretty possible, to put it, to put it mildly. Uh, talk to us a bit. If I'm a company that's trying to figure out uh, my security infrastructure, what are some of the initial suggestions you have? And then I'll go back. I want to mention some things that the FBI and Homeland Security have told us in their their alerts. But just in general, I call you up and I say, you know, we have uh, we have field offices in you know make up the countries. You know, these five countries, including the U.S. Given everything's going on, we're not sure we have the appropriate physical security, we'll talk about cyber in a bit, physical security infrastructure, what are some of the things you would ask me about so you could better advise me? Yeah, thanks, John. And and first of all, thanks for having me back on the show and really glad to be here. Um, so, you know, when we talk about uh, what a company might think about or might look at when they're assessing their security and risk management posture, there are three key areas that I would start with when I'm having that conversation. So the first is intelligence and threat analysis. Does the company have a capability uh, to uh, collect information, assess that information, and use it meaningfully for uh, making decisions? And those could be business decisions or security decisions or investment decisions, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And I think that when we talk about intelligence, that can be this sort of scary or mystified word for those, particularly in the private sector, because when we think about intelligence, we think about CIA and spies and uh, secret information. But really, intelligence is just a business process. Intelligence is a process to, uh, like I said, collect information and make meaningful use of that. And a company does not need to spend a lot of money and they don't need to hire a whole team of former intelligence officials in order to have an intelligence capability. They just need to have a process for understanding what information might be relevant to protecting their organization, how they're going to get that information, how they're going to analyze that information, and then how they're going to disseminate uh, the findings of that analysis within their organization to support decisions. So uh, that would be kind of the first area that we would look at, that intelligence and threat analysis piece. Can I stop you right there real quick? When, when you say, so you gather this intelligence and say it's a big company, what's your recommendation on how much you communicate 
to everybody. Obviously, you want people to be uh, vigilant. You want them, as, as they say, see something, say something, that kind of stuff. But what what, what do you recommend? Because you don't, I, I'm saying this, maybe I'm wrong. You, you don't want to frighten the employees unnecessarily, but you want them to be, as I said, vigilant. So as you're crafting that recommendation, do you also say, and by the way, you know, just let senior levels know or people in certain areas that are more susceptible? How, how do you do that? Right. So let's look at the analogy of how the U.S. government does this for a second. In that world, the intelligence community refers to these consumers as customers. They're customers of intelligence. And customers for the U.S. intelligence community include the president, the vice president, secretary of state, secretary of defense. It also includes uh, lower level officials or mid-level officials. Um, and it includes, uh, you know, interns, right? If the intern has a security clearance. Doesn't mean that the intern is getting the same information that the president is getting. But they're both potential customers of intelligence. And so what we advise is that clients go through a process of determining who their customers are. So, for example, if you stand up an intelligence capability within a large global financial institution, you're going to want to go through that process of understanding, okay, what are the CEO's intelligence requirements? What does the CEO want to know about? What does the C-suite want to know about? What does the board want to know about? Separately from that, what do different business units want to know about? And then what are the kinds of information that we might want to blast out to the entire uh, employee base? Uh, and each of those answers is going to look different, and it's going to inform different types of intelligence and analysis, and therefore different what they call products that go out, different analytical products. And to your point, John, those products are going to have different levels of sensitivity and confidentiality depending on the customers to which they're being provided. Makes perfect sense. So again, I interrupted you. What are the other two items you, you want to recommend? Right. So the other two, so the, the, the second is we would look at the degree to which the company has comprehensive and holistic security planning. Uh, and to your point about physical and cyber, uh, we are strong believers and proponents that you really have to look at the whole picture. Threat actors nowadays, they do not just rely on one threat vector. In other words, they don't rely just on a cyber attack or just on a physical attack or just on an insider risk compromise or just on supply chain compromise. They're looking at how they can exploit multiple vectors to achieve their objectives of compromising your organization. And so therefore, it is incumbent upon the the organization to have that holistic security planning that breaks down silos and looks across multiple security disciplines. So that's a key part of actually what we assess in clients is the degree to which they have processes in place to do that holistic security planning. And then the third area is what we call proactive engagement. So the traditional approach to security is reactive. It is um, what is sometimes pejoratively referred to as the three G's in physical security, guns, gates, and guards. Um, and on the cyber side, it is uh, primarily focused on just IT and, and technical controls. Um, that is no longer sufficient. 
we believe that companies need to be highly proactive in how they go beyond just creating um, uh, defenses, kind of securing the moat, so to speak, around the business. Um, and they need to be leaning forward to engage with external stakeholders, particularly government stakeholders who are potential providers of information to them um, or potential mechanisms of assistance should something go wrong, uh, to industry stakeholders, because a key part of this is benchmarking what your industry peers are doing on security and learning from them. Now, there are always competitive forces that are going to challenge that, but we know that there are real security benefits to be had there. And then finally, and this is really, I think, an emerging piece, and this is really novel for the security industry, is the media. Um, in, in many cases, you've got an organization, security folks who don't want to ever touch or have anything to do with the media. And then obviously you've got your comms or your PR or, you know, whoever is, is managing your media relationships. Uh, nowadays, security issues have the potential to become headlines so quickly, uh, depending on what it is and what happens to your organization that, it's really important that security leaders have an understanding of that media environment and work across their teams internally with their with with their comms folks to um, shape their positioning within that information environment. Is that partially because of uh, hacks and that sort of thing, and and both the the reputational hit uh, that you might get from? once that's discovered and wasn't communicated or is it just or is it broader than that it's it's trying to be more uh proactive in general it's primarily the reputational issue as you okay. mentioned um because security issues now have the potential it, not that they didn't always, but we're just seeing it so much more frequently, whether it's major hacks um, or um, the kind of overlap between security risk and ESG risk, for example, um, you know, protests that, uh, you know, maybe may veer into violence. And how does a company respond to that? How does a company navigate both protecting its assets while not putting its foot in its mouth publicly in the way that they're talking about a, a political issue that's going on? So that requires a level of integration between the security team and the comms team that just, I think, historically has not been there. You know, I just thought of this just now as you were answering that, and that is the recent lack of a better term, attacks on certain companies because of the political positions they've taken. There's been, um, you know, whether it's a beer company or Disney or what have you, there's been political attacks, but there's also been some physical attacks. So um, I'm assuming that's an area that needs more focus than before. So if an institution is going to make a, a public statement, and some it's, what you mentioned before, the ESGs, they're, they're just trying to be responsible citizens, in, in my opinion. Obviously, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to worry about pe people's take on that. But a company, they have to do that, right? So to your point, the PR people not only have to be aware of how are we going to message X, but how are we going to respond to Y? And then your role could be how we're going to respond to the potential physical attacks of why. So is that a situation where a large organization, you want to protect their main headquarters or you want to make sure that, you know, their satellite offices or all of that? I mean, that could be a pretty big endeavor, right? 
Yeah, so let's look at a concrete example. This happened with Target. Um, they yeah. had released some merchandise uh, for um, related to LGBTQ, and then there was uh, violence in stores related to that, uh, based on political opposition to that. And then there were bomb threats made to Target stores. And um, so that that is an area where you had... Uh, a corporation being viewed rightly or wrongly as having made a political statement. And right. then people who were opposed or took issue with that political statement uh, engaged in either threats uh, or actual violence against that company. Uh, so I think that's the, that's the, the example of what we're seeing. And I think we're going to see that more and more as uh, unfortunately, our information, misinformation, disinformation environment becomes more complex and uh, polarization and political extremism becomes more intense. Um, you know, one, one kind of way to think about this, too, is that in any political uh, movement or political opposition on an issue, there uh, is the potential that while the vast majority of that political movement or political feeling is nonviolent, um, that there will be a, a small fringe that does engage in violence. Uh, and this is uh, what we looked at a lot back in my government days, right, when we were looking at terrorism, because terrorism fundamentally is that little fringe on the edge that chooses to go beyond just having a political viewpoint, sometimes an extreme political viewpoint, and engage in violent actions to advance that political viewpoint. I think you're going to see that happen, unfortunately, uh, more frequently on these extremely politically charged issues. And companies need to be aware that they may sometimes be in the crosshairs, even unwittingly. Yeah, and I think that's where you guys come in, right? You talked about one of the things you work on is uh, sort of assessing the geopolitical challenges in the world. And it, it would seem to me that now, since things can um, get overdone so quickly, uh, responses can be so quickly to anything, that uh, just making sure the corporations are paying attention to what's going on in the media, what's going on from a policy standpoint, and not, you know, not overreacting every time there's a particular issue that could affect a bank or could affect an energy company. But to be smart about that, um, th that just seems to be almost overwhel overwhelming in terms of uh, preparing for it. So it may be a situation where it's, you know, as simple as we have a group within our organization or we've hired a company that when there's a major issue that perhaps isn't getting media play, but we know it could turn into a potential violent response, that companies that are in the space that could face that response be prepared on an ongoing, almost 24-7 basis. I mean, it, it's scary to think about, but I agree with you. I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. So I think, uh, you know, having your advice clearly helps. So let me just transition real quick then to the difference between preparing for reaction from foreign entities like we have now with what's going on in the Middle East uh, and domestic. So domestic violent extremists or those that support a particular political party. Um, you know, obviously we saw the guy that was killed by the FBI in Indiana last year. We've seen other, other examples. 
sadly, I think it's going to be more and more. What's the biggest difference, if there is one, between preparing for what I'll call domestic terrorism versus what, we, what we're seeing and what you're dealing with with your clients regarding what's going on in the Middle East? Obviously, lone wolves, I get that. I mean, that's something that probably is pretty hard to protect against. But what's the biggest difference? So if I'm calling you and saying, hey, you know, I don't have any international locations with mine. I'm just a domestic institution, uh, but I'm potentially one that falls in an industry that's been targeted, for lack of a better term. What's the difference between helping them versus a global international organization that obviously is very susceptible to attacks in a variety of ways? Yeah. So obviously, depending on where you operate, the industry that you're in and the geography that you're in, you're going to be exposed to different types of risks. I think that you did put your finger on it in terms of the lone wolf comment that probably the most wide ranging and pervasive difference that we see domestically versus internationally when it comes to the terrorist threat environment is just that for the most part, we see more of that kind of um, individual lone wolf, low capability uh, violent extremism domestically, whereas overseas, and obviously this depends on the region or country that you're operating in, but if you're operating in what we call a high-risk region, then you may uh, find yourself sort of in a territory where you actually have a fairly capable terrorist organization operating, uh, and then you're in a whole di different world um, of the capability that an organization like that might might bring. Um, the Piece of, and I, I'll go down to I'll go into some breakdown on that. But um, you know, one thing that I would add is that there the lines between domestic and foreign in terms of where your operations are becoming blurred. And where this is most apparent is actually not in the terrorist threat environment, but in the um, foreign nation state actor threat environment. So. Uh, for example, uh, if you have uh, if you operate in the energy sector uh, in the United States and you have no assets outside of the United States, you are very much a target for Russian and Chinese espionage, cyber attacks, um, and again, sort of that compromise along a range of vectors. You don't need to be operating in Asia or in Europe in order to uh, be exposed to, the, to to that risk, and so. Uh, that is why I think it's incumbent upon organizations, even those who don't have assets overseas, to um, really be mindful of what is going on in the global threat environment and what's going on geopolitically, because it likely could impact your organization, even if kind of at a, a very surface level of analysis, you wouldn't think um, that it that it could. I got a couple more for you. One is, you know, just in general. Uh, you cut, you came from the government. How collaborative have governments been with the private sector to assist in these sort of both physical and cybersecurity uh, uh, management issues? You know, I know obviously in general the issue alerts and guidance and all that kind of stuff, but just in general, without you know giving away anything that's proprietary, but uh, how helpful have your former peers been to the private sector in dealing with what's Relatively new challenge, but a major one. Well, the U.S. government uh, leads the way in this, certainly, relative to other governments uh, when it comes to public-private 
collaboration and information sharing on security risks. Uh, there are a number of different initiatives that the United States government advances on this. Uh, one is uh, the Overseas Security Advisory Council, headed by the State Department. Actually, um, the the annual briefing is is coming up. Um, there's also the um, what they call DSAC, the Domestic Security Alliance Council, run by FBI, which is sort of the domestic. Uh, corollary to OSAC. You've got InfraGuard, uh, which is an FBI championed organization. Uh, and you have the uh, ISACs, the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers. Uh, and those and other mechanisms operate under um, what's called PPD 21, uh, Presidential Policy Directive uh, from 2013 on Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience, uh, which is actually in the process of being updated right now by the Biden administration. Um, so that, I think, speaks to the level of effort that's going into this uh, from multiple agencies across the U.S. government. There's certainly a desire and an intent to reach out proactively to the private sector and help the private sector to mitigate security risks. Uh, that being said, there are, there are challenges. Um, there, uh, for with PPD 21, for example, it was written in 2013. It mandated sector-specific plans for each of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. I don't believe any of those have been updated uh, since they were originally written um, going on 10 years ago. Um, you know, there is also a level of disorganization among federal agencies in terms of who's got the lead on certain issues. So we see this, especially in the cyberspace. Uh, if you're a company that's recently been hacked, um, you know, do you call the FBI? Do you call CISA? Uh, what do you need to report to the SEC now? Um, and what are the differences between those reporting requirements? Uh, and are the government agencies going to help you or hurt you or penalize you? And how do you navigate all that, right? So it's not really a user-friendly experience that the U.S. government has set up uh, on these issues. Uh, and then finally, a lot of these uh, mechanisms that the United States has set up to support public-private information sharing are, are industry forums. So they are collaborative across multiple companies. And uh, while that is great and it's very important and we always advocate a level of industry collaboration with our clients, there are also competitive forces that you're going to run into there. So if you're in an information sharing group among the financial services industry, you know, you've got your competitors in the room and there is reluctance to share certain information. And so that's where, uh, companies that are serious about understanding um, and understand these issues and mitigating the security risks associated with them, they're going to lean forward into all of these forums. They're going to know who the contacts are at the State Department, at the FBI, at uh, in the intelligence community. Um, but they're also going to build their own internal capabilities and have their own proprietary uh, sources of information that they can rely on because that's how you're going to get the information and support that's required to protect your business specifically, not just the industry as a whole. I'd like to end on that because it's a positive note, but I'll get you out of here on this one. And, and this one, we could take another half hour, but um, I know that you've done some webinars recently about what's happening in the Middle East in terms of the security challenges 
just generally, not just the Middle East, it's just generally, and I realize uh, there's so much happening, but what uh, what is your and your security peers, what's their worldview going forward? What, what, what do you expect next five years? And look, I understand, Mark, there's no way to know, given everything that's already happened in the past couple of years, but just in general, from a security preparedness standpoint, what should companies be doing besides staying uh, current, paying attention to things, and obviously listening to folks like yourself? Yeah, well, uh, you can appreciate, John, because on the webinar, I asked uh, some of the former senior officials we had on there to place bets on issues. So I am uh, I'm no stranger to, to forcing people into taking a position on this stuff. I think actually it's important that uh, those of us who have some expertise in this area uh, do take a position as opposed to just waxing philosophical and not giving a clear answer. Um, when it comes to the next five years, I am unfortunately a bit of a pessimist. Uh, I think that, look, in order to predict, you have to look at not individual events, but underlying trends and drivers. And there are three underlying drivers that I think are going to dictate the way things go from a security uh, perspective in the next say five years. Uh, one is the um, geopolitical environment and particularly the rise of great power competition uh, among the United States, China and Russia and a breakdown in globalization. Uh, I think that is going to create levels of geopolitical risk to companies that we have not seen previously. And we're seeing that within the geopolitical risk industry that demand is very high right now for geopolitical expertise on these issues because I think there's an awareness that those are going to get worse, not better over the next five years. The second uh, driver is related to the information environment that we're in. Obviously, we've lived in a social media um, uh, world for many years now, uh, but the accessibility of information and the sources of information are uh, proliferating. And also, we are seeing the entry of uh, very high levels of misinformation, disinformation, and uh, now um, technological tools, particularly including artificial intelligence, to generate that mis and disinformation at scale. Uh, the challenge with that information environment is that it is going to, I think, compound the challenges around extremism and political polarization that we're seeing. And I think that's going to beget additional security risk over the next five years. And then finally, on a related note, the last driver is uh, technology. So um, artificial intelligence, quantum, 5G, blockchain, uh, virtual and augmented reality, all of these things are going to uh, show, I think, significant advancements over the next five years. And with each of those, we are going to see additional displacement of power from authorities and structured institutions to individuals. And while that is very good in some ways, from a security perspective, that also creates risk because it increases the ability for an individual to um, to 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 wreak havoc in some way. And so uh, I think that's what we're looking at over the next five years. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, it's not a rosy picture. And so if I'm placing a bet, my money is on more, not less security risk. And I don't think the advancements that we see are gonna be, uh, the, I should say, I don't think the positive advancements we see are going to be sufficient to uh, to, to net out um, the, the negatives and the risks. 
Mark Friedman, uh, CEO and founder of uh, Rebel Global Security. Thank you so much uh, for your time and insight. And I urge people to take a look at uh, Mark's website. Also, he posts quite a bit on LinkedIn and has some programming on there too. Like Right Source, the webinars are, are free and they've been really valuable. I've been able to listen to a couple of them. So uh, keep, keep it up, Mark. We really appreciate it. But again, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, John, for having me.